0: So what does it take to make your first million, to scale a business, or to get your first high street listing? I'm Oliver Bruce, founder and entrepreneur myself, and I ask industry leaders and entrepreneurs on my award-winning podcast, Success Is In The Mind, exactly that. From high-growth startups to scale-ups and businesses about to exit, I am joined weekly by the founders of businesses like Octopus Energy, Genies, Thursday Dating, Habito, Cano Water, and Hera, as well as many more. From sportswear to tech, energy to consumables, hear it here firsthand from those entrepreneurs innovating and disrupting. Join me every Wednesday from 8am.
1: It was the first time that I'd ever really experienced failure. Uh, And I don't think I was mentally prepared for it. Having been through it, and it was very, very depressing and dark when I went through it, when I came out of it, I realized how important an experience it was to have gone through and, and how much you learn from that experience.
0: Thank you so much to our headline sponsors for the year, Capsule Cover. Capsule Cover, a specialist insurance partner to growth businesses, supports some of the UK's most innovative and ambitious companies. Sponsoring each and every one of our podcasts, we're on a journey with Capsule, and so should you be. If you're a scale-up or an ambitious, high-growth business, check out how Capsule Cover can help you with bespoke insurance solutions. Enquire via capsulecover.com and quote Success22. So, coming up in today's episode, we've a blinder. We form a pop star-turned-presenter-turned-clothing entrepreneur and chef, Mylene Class, And with her joins Jamie Barber, a serial entrepreneur and co-founder of The Hush Collective. I ask them both how they've stayed focused whilst living such a diverse and varied life. How does fame change a person? And why start a food delivery business with all the competition currently out there? Ladies and gentlemen, co-founder of My Supper Hero, Jamie Barber and Mylene Class. So, Jamie, Mylene, welcome to the show. We're here to talk about your latest venture, My Supper Hero. But first, I wanted to know a little bit more about you guys. Jamie, back in 1996, you were practicing law. In fact, you studied law at university. It was in 1999, however, that you decided to explore the world of entrepreneurship, founding the Hush Collective in Mayfair, London, with none other than Sir Roger Moore. How did you get involved in that?
1: Uh, it's a good question. So, I originally started off in a in an entertainment law firm in London, and I was very privileged because I was looking after a group of the old 1960s iconic celebrities, British celebrities like Michael Caine, Roger Moore, David Frost, uh, those kind of really iconic old, old school 60s black and white almost celebrities. And I got very close to Sir Roger Moore and his family. And Roger was trying to get his son Jeffrey out of a disastrous um, project that he'd got himself tangled into called spy cafe which was like a planet hollywood themed restaurant based on his father with goldfinger fries and live and let die burgers it was awful <laughs> and um i spent six months getting jeffrey out of all these arrangements and then roger turned did around, you just say
2: live and let fries? live
1: and let fries god i wish I. you needed I me ris- you, needed, you needed
2: a pun could, it
1: could have been successful <laughs> <laughs> just, so so after after that experience uh, jeffrey said to me i've spent all this time trying to start a restaurant and now i've don't know what to do with myself. So I said, look, rather than do a chained burger type restaurant, ironically, because I now own a burger restaurant, but that's you a nice do. story. I said, why don't you do something a bit more glamorous where you can entertain your friends and your father's friends and and just be part of the scene. It could be really exciting. And he said, well, I've got no idea how to go about that. And I said, I've got no idea how to go about it either, but I'll leave law. And why don't we do it together? So we ended up with no money, no experience, no track record, uh, securing this 10,000 square foot building in the middle of Mayfair. And we started a restaurant called Hush, which is still going today and is a fantastic uh, fantastic restaurant. So that, that's kind of how I got into the restaurant business.
0: So where did you get the money, though, to start that? Was it was it from the Moore family? Was it something that you could, you could muster up yourself? It was typical friends and family startup money
1: at that stage, um, and both. Jeffrey and I were, you know, we were neither of us were married. We, we had disposable income. We were kind of going out quite a lot. So we, we had a, a network of, of friends and friends of family that all wanted to be associated with something cool and glamorous on the, on the London scene. Um, and we set out to raise, I think it was a million pounds in, in, in those days. Um, and it took quite a long time. I think we must've had about, I think we had about 20 million pounds worth of commitments. And so you actually ask for the money and those, that £20 million pounds worth of commitment suddenly whittled down and whittled down. And, and we did finally manage to end up raising the money that we needed. Um, and, and that, that was the, the story.
0: So you jumped ship from law and you went into food. Mylene, at the time that uh, Jamie was doing that, you were going on a reality television programme, Pop Stars, to sing your heart out. Did you kind of always see yourself as a musician or did you want to go into the world of business over time?
2: So before I um, joined the pop band here today, uh, I was um, in a West End show. I, I did the final show for uh, Miss Saigon. So I trained um, to go into the West End. And then ha- having done a year in the West End and doing backing vocals, I was singing backing vocals for Katie Lang, for Michael Crawford. You name it, 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 was a, it was a great job at the time, but um, I decided I didn't want to do any more West End. And um, I happened to be singing for Lily the Lily Savage show and they were holding um, auditions next door for Hearsay. So I kind of just jumped on the back of those and the rest is history. But um, <laughs> when it comes to business, I think the biggest lesson that I learned came from Hearsay without a shadow of a doubt. And it was um, when we were playing Wembley and uh, we were looking through our figures Um, as to what the pop band had actually made and there was a drastic drop one day uh, on the day that we opened our stands I don't know what 10 minutes late and it was uh, on dilly boppers we were making a lot of our money on dilly boppers because the turnover on them as you can imagine I mean if you think of how much it takes to how much it costs to make them and actually the profit added on top that's where the money was coming from. So I just actually realized it wasn't from writing the songs, which we weren't doing. and It certainly wasn't from the ticket (laughs) sales, which were then being shared out between five of us, plus management, which is six, plus the record company, and then the TV company. On top of that, you very, very quickly learn that actually it's from the merch. And so hearsay bubble bath hearsay duvet sets hearsay socks easter eggs actually my biggest lesson if you talk about ups and downs was when uh hearsay very impromptu uh, it was a prompt in an impromptu um band member leaving um we then had i think it was just over a quarter of a million easter eggs that we had to sell at Woolworth, Woolworths, and they pulled me in and they just pulled in some kid going what do you want us to do with these easter eggs and i was like i don't know what you want me to do with Nearly quarter of a million Easter eggs that had five <laughs> members and we only had four members left. So uh, it was those kind of lessons that made me think, OK, the world of business is quite an interesting one. And the world <laughs> of merchandise is one I really do enjoy. And then it went on to design. Um, and uh, I've had a, a children's range for 15 years
0: exactly and you've done and that's international now and we'll get on to that later but whilst you were whilst you were singing your heart out jamie also you have been in the world of music but that's not something necessarily that you pursued quite as much as my why was that probably because i was not good enough <laughs> <laughs>
1: um I, I had a very i had a very short-lived but really really amazing fun music career in that i uh, i at university i had a a, a a little studio band which was there were three of us which was which quite successful <laughs> um, and, uh, and I, we ended up signing a, a publishing deal with Warner Chapel, which was amazing. And then when I came to London, I was working at this law firm, which, which we were talking about earlier. And I, I had all the demos with me and they were really cool for their time. They're very dated when you listen back to them, but they were full of nineties, uh, trip hop style. It was, it was, they were really good fun. Um, but I. I managed to convince my law firm to send me to the cannes film festival to to cover the Cannes Film Festival. I still don't really know what that was, but I managed to convince them to send me there and um, and I told them that all the deals were done if I flew business and that they needed to send me business rightly so so um so they kind of went along with it to their um to their credit, and I heard a story that George Michael was going to be on the same plane going to Nice. And so when I checked in, um, they said, "Have you got any preferred seating?" And I said, "I'm supposed to be sitting next to Mr. Michael." And they went, <laughs> "Okay." And uh, they set me next to George Michael on the plane, and and I said to him, "Have you got five minutes?" And he said, "Well, I've got an hour and a half." So I said, "Well, would you mind listening to my demos?" And, <laughs> "No, and
2: he, I don't know and, this." And, "And
1: do you not know the story?" "No." So he said, "Sure, I'll listen to your your, your demos." And um, and the only thing I could think of at that at that point was that that George Michael was sitting on a plane. With my headphones on his ears, that was that was what I was just like, my God, his my headphones were actually touching his ears. So I thought, it was, and, and he he kind of said, "That's I really like these. These are really cool. He said, "I'll give you a call when I get back to London." I thought, yeah, fine. But you know, it was a nice it was nice while it lasted. And then I went back to to my office, and about three weeks later, the receptionist called up and said George is on the phone for you, and I had no idea at that point, forgotten the connection. So I picked up the phone, and he said, "It's George." Can you? I really like your demos. Could you come over to the studio um, and 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 meet with us? And I was like, yeah, okay. And then I kind of legged it, changed into a pair of jeans from my suit, and went to the the studio. And he said, I've got this record label that I'm starting called Aegean, and I'd like to sign you guys to be our first artist on the label. So, so I ended up spending two years writing and recording this album with <laughs> with George, and going literally from this from law changing and then going to the studio staying at the studio until three in the morning and I did that for two <laughs> years so one minute I was in the office and the next minute I was in this studio I was in in studio one at Psalm West I don't know if you know yeah, Psalm I did, West. yeah. and I, I was conducting conducting is wrong, I was orchestrating a 24-piece orchestra with Seal and George Michael behind me watching me doing it and it was just the Brilliant. most surreal and amazing experience ever so um but then uh George um his life changed when he got he got he, when he came out he was forced to come out in uh, being caught in los angeles in the in the Luz, which is a very public story uh, and i think the record company became a big dis- distraction he closed the record company down and then i um, that kind of knee jerked me into leaving law and starting the restaurant because i couldn't really go back to being literally a lawyer You
2: your feelings I, <laughs>
1: that's true. so yeah so th- there was a quite right, a few few careers
2: isn't it funny? You went from, um, the, the, from law to studio, and I went from studio to seeing lawyers all oh, the time.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of life changing, though, for, for George, granted, but arguably, Mylene, before you, you found fame, I suppose, on pop stars, what were you like as an individual, as a child? What did you want to do as an individual?
2: And foremost, I wanted to work as a musician. I really, I really wanted to work as a musician. But I did certainly love the entrepreneurial side of things. I've got um, a, a dad who was a navy frogman, um, but he was he was hell bent on making sure that I would be very independent, um, especially when he w- worked at sea and worked in the merchant navy. So I just kind of helped my mum run a household, and I don't mean just sort of. Helping with the laundry, I mean, you know, lighting pilot lights, helping fix the car, knowing how to change a tire, you know, just being really independent in that way. On my mum's side, she's an NHS nurse. So, between having a father in the services and a mum as an NHS nurse, you know, you just get on with it. Your arm could be falling off and you'd still have to go to school. So, it gives you a really, really good grounding in, in being independent and just thinking on your feet.
0: It seems, Jamie, that you kind of were very much born as an entrepreneur. You've kind of put your hand into, into most things from food through to law through to being a musician as well. And, and you've had quite a lot of success from that.
1: Well, I had a, I had a, a big restaurant in St. James's, which was called Shumi, which was, my, was, was the first time that I'd ever really experienced failure. Uh, and I don't think I was mentally prepared for it. Um, having been through it, and it was very, very depressing and dark when I went through it. When I came out of it, I realized how important an experience it was to have gone through and and how much you learn from that experience, both mentally and and also financially. Um, And it's funny because I I always feel that in the States, they appreciate people that have gone through things that haven't worked out so much more than in the UK. I think in the UK, if things don't work out, it, it it can be very judgmental in the states it's almost a not i wouldn't call it a badge of honor but it's it's certainly uh, an experience that people respect that you've been through so i had this very very big high profile restaurant called shumi in in st james's which opened with a with a huge fanfare and lots of celebrities and big money uh, experiments. Uh, and i tried to do something really different and and cutting edge uh, which was to do an italian restaurant which had Um, Japanese style of presentation, so very minimalist presentation, which now is very um, pedestrian. But at the time, people didn't understand it at all. And they thought that it was a Japanese Italian fusion restaurant, and you were going to eat chopsticks with your your spaghetti with chopsticks. And it was all it was all very, very confused. Um, And it it crashed after uh, about a year and a half. And I, I again, mentally, I just wasn't prepared for it, because I'd had a pretty I would say, pretty kind of easy path into business from then and just kind of assumed that that's what it was like. You did things and they were successful. And then suddenly to not be successful was was a bit of a shock to the system.
0: And when you say mentally you weren't prepared as an individual, you know, what, what do you have to prepare when you're going into business? Because it is quite a strenuous thing. You had great success. That didn't work. You obviously had a few knockbacks. Did you lose money or did you have enough of a burn rate as an individual to be able to get you through those downturns?
1: As an individual, it was, um, I, I think the biggest strain was was the sense of responsibility. So it was the sense of responsibility to people that had invested in me, that are employees, that um, I think there was the, the kind of slight schadenfreude that you feel from other people where, you know, you, you get this slight feeling that there are other people that Secretly, are quite happy that you haven't done something that's been successful. So, I think that was the hardest part of, uh, about it. I mean, financially, I've got a fantastic partnership with my wife. We managed to get through it, um, and and it was and it was fine. And in these things don't last; those dark periods don't last. It, it always gets better. I have been through so many of these experiences mm-hmm. over twenty years, and it always does get better. And when you're in the depths of that dark period. You never think it will, but it but it always does. So so you know, those are lessons that I think you pick up just through war knocks, really. Or hearsay. Or
0: hearsay. (laughs) (laughs) Mylene, speaking about pressure, I mean, as soon as someone sits in front of the camera and finds a bit of notoriety, you constantly get people slag you off. I mean, you know, look at every individual that's on social media these days. You have people that constantly have a go at them. How have you dealt mentally with the pressure that comes from from being recognised?
2: So I think it's quite an interesting one because, you know, I've I've been in the public eye for 23 years now. And I think that longevity does say something about what I do, but it's very easy for people just to assume that, you know, I sang on a on a reality show and I got a lucky break, which I did do, but then the rest is it, you have to then prove, you have to prove why you still deserve your place and why you can be there. And whilst um, I did my years at, at music college, you know, I said that my dad was a Navy diver, but he's from six generations of classical musicians. I also did my hours at the piano and Jamie will know what that feels like. Um, You know, I I put the work in. And so to then have people then deciding either your fate or if they like you on if you dyed your hair the right color or, or said something in a different way. I remember people pulling my accent apart, wanting to change my name. Um, when I first you know got into the band, they wanted to use my middle name. I've been shying away from my middle name, Angela, for years. And then suddenly they wanted me to be known by it because nobody will understand Mylene. And it was just at the time, it wasn't about having that racial ambiguity, which is so popular now at the time, it was just like, well, what are we going to do with you? So it's really changed the face of, of, of um, celebrity and being in the public eye. And I've had to move with that and be a real comedian and keep reinventing. But first and foremost, you have to really know yourself. And that really, that takes a lot. That takes a lot of soul searching. And when people, when everyone's going for you, like it's very similar. You know, it's schadenfreude. If you're doing really well, great for you, but not everyone's going to like it. And if you've got new ideas and you're brave enough to st- to, to, to step out and experiment and see if that works, again, you, you have to really, you have to really know yourself. And as a result now, you know, being in my 40s, having children, you realize that none of it matters. If they're not paying your mortgage, their opinions do not count. But you know, when you're in your early 20s and it's very clear how people feel about you because you're standing on stage and they're telling you, you, it, you it's a real testing time.
0: Jamie, this is maybe a question for you, and we'll come back to you shortly, Marlene. But in terms of staying focused and looking at what the best thing to get involved in is, because you've been involved with multiple different restaurants. You've been an NED, you've been a CEO, you've been a founder, you've been a co-founder. When do you know what the right thing to do is, and how do you not get distracted by doing everything at once?
1: Just doing things, in my experience, is bloody difficult. And (laughs) and I I take my hat off to every. Everybody that started businesses from scratch, it is is really, really painful. So I never do – I never start something new on a whim, so to speak, because I just know how much energy and focus it it, it takes up. Um, I think I instinctively like to know how things work, and and I get quite excited by understanding how things work. Uh, And when I get really excited about something, then I kind of feel like I I want to do it. I'm one of these really – um, kind of odd people that um, I get business envy. So I I don't go into a uh, a restaurant, for example, that's fantastic and go. Oh, I'm having a fantastic experience. I'll go in there going, God, I, I wish I owned something like this. You know, I just kind of want to want to kind of create really amazing things. I think that's my my driver, um, and hopefully most of the time it works. Uh, sometimes it doesn't, but uh, yeah, I think I think I just get really excited by. By the idea of creating something that's going to be very successful. And, and, and once I've locked onto that, then that, that's what I'll tend to follow.
0: Mylene, just looking at how you stay focused, because you've done 101 things as well from going on I'm a Celeb and coming second through to going on Dancing on Ice, Radio 2, you represent uh, again, Talk Radio, Smooth Radio, Classic FM. It's a lot of stuff as well as running multiple businesses one of which is a child wear clothing brand which is international the other of which is a food delivery service how do you find time to to do that and to get it all right
2: i don't get it all right at all like jamie said you learn more from the things that go wrong you know you talk about the children's clothing i've, I've been in children's clothing now for 15 years um, again, it's not just a tenuous link to what I do. My grandfather worked in textiles, and I used to listen to my mum on her. as I used to fall asleep. I used to listen to the whirring of the the, the, the um, sewing machine, and I used to watch the patterns being cut. You, you know, it was something that I grew up around. But to actually have your own children's brand, it's actually really risky. And if I knew now, um, if I knew then what I know now, it's in a miracle that anything gets done. As Jamie <laughs> was saying because there are so many pitfalls. As soon as we went international i couldn't have certain colors in my clothing you know i wasn't allowed like purple i couldn't have white because for some it was for us it's we we say it as purity and for, and in in india they wear it as a color of mourning uh for um so many of our pajamas that we we make you you have um fairies uh, which are seen as the occult in a lot of arab states um owls owls are nocturnal let's put those on pajamas not in china again a heartbringer of death and it was just nonstop i had to count the points on my stars i had to make sure the shapes that i i sewed the buttons with didn't constitute as crosses in certain countries so you have to have a huge cultural awareness of what it is you're doing i once was um selling our best selling t-shirt again in the uae um, which had like a little puppy on it. And I held it up and I was like, this is our bestseller in the UK. And there were no takers. And that was a huge lesson because they don't have dogs as domestic pets. It's just not seen as, as something they have. They're mm-hmm. seen as unclean. So I then had to say, but in the UAE, we're going to change it into a wolf and it's going to have glasses. And it became our best selling. Um, t-shirt, this wolf with sunglasses on. But I look back at that t-shirt and I just think that was thinking on my feet. Another time I did a franchise to, um, I did a pitch to Russia and the Russian side of our um, our, our children's wear. And I was showing these snowsuits and they were not biting whatsoever because our tog, even if we go to the highest tog in this country, it was still too cold for the conditions that they have in Russia. So the UAE again bought all of my snowsuits because the aircon is so ferocious. <laughs> so if you don't have a cultural understanding and again on top of all of that because it's children's wear they have the, the safety requirements for children's clothes have to be of the utmost standard because children or babies can't tell you oh this label's bothering me this piece of cotton is you know caught around my toes. So I've definitely learned on the job, but it's the longest celebrity brand full stop in the UK. So I'm really, that's something I'm really proud of, but because of those challenges I've had, you then apply them to other business strategies and you then look for those pitfalls. You then look for everything from the financial uh, challenges that can catch you out all the way through to the cultural challenges, just how things are worded yeah. and always making sure the right people are in the room. I've been in many meetings when people are deciding that they know what somebody's going to want from a marketing perspective. But if you haven't got anyone that's actually being represented sitting in that room, well, then it's just, I suppose, it's your imagination and not much else. So that research, whether you call it you know, come, coming from a, a musician's point of view and having that analytical mind all the way through to just having that experience... You learn very, very quickly, but you've certainly learned the hard way in business.
0: And that's called My K Clothing Genius name. I know exactly why you've, why you've done that. And again, the why for that was was because you, what, simply couldn't find the product? You simply couldn't find what you were looking for? Or you just liked garments, having obviously spoken about the money you made from say shortfall there?
2: I was about to have a baby, and I didn't like the colours that were <clears throat> out there. It was blue right. for boys, pink for girls, and yellow if you were kind of undecided, and the really insipid yellow at that. And so I went with black, because I thought... <laughs> I've got a Spanish grandmother. These will be really exotic Mediterranean clothes. And then I just had a deluge of people saying, why are you dressing babies in black? It's not, you know, are you you taking them to a funeral? It's so miserable. Children don't need to have LBDs. And suddenly I was just like, I just thought that black dresses looked nice. But it turned out there was a whole, uh, there was a whole appetite from mothers who were as well bucking the trend, kicking against ABC and primary colors and pink and blue. Mm -hmm. And they also wanted black and it became a bestseller immediately. So it didn't matter what everyone else Thought you just also have to go with your gut. It's in thirty three countries. It's international. It's fifteen years in, in the making.
0: But Jamie, you famously once said that uh, to keep that entrepreneurial spirit is really the art of staying alive. You just get lucky. You know what did you mean by that? Can people learn to become an entrepreneur, or are you born into that world? I
1: think when you're when you're when you do something that's successful, people just see the end result, so they assume that it's all happened overnight. And um, and I think my experiences is, is that you have to be unbelievably tenacious and keep going keep pushing down doors never take no for an answer try and learn and fix on the job and then as i say i think it's the it's the art of staying alive until you get lucky because there's no silver bullet that suddenly makes things successful it's all the product of long hours and hard work and i have to say without kind of flattering mylene i i don't know how she has the time to do the number of things you do she's got an an unbelievable work ethic but she's just like just working 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 constantly on stuff and 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 i i kind of really admire that and um and it also, it's just also quite exciting to, to, to be a part of that energy. Oh, that's
2: very kind. Mm. See, I really admire the team that Jamie's got around him because he's got a super a super secret power, and that's his wife, Claire. Everyone should have a Claire. I would like a Claire. <laughs> <laughs> She's incredible. <laughs> but Jamie's right in putting a team together that is just indelible. And also also when you're picking who you're choosing, or when you're choosing who, who, to, who to work with, It's not just a case of they look successful or it's definitely going to work with this person. It's can you work with this person? Jamie's got phenomenal family values, phenomenal, second to none. In fact, straight after this, he's running off to see his daughter in the school play. And he's like, I have to be on time. And I really admire that because... Many people don't necessarily have those values anymore, but it then shows in his work and his body of work and how he works and who he's looking after and how he looks after those people. So it's definitely look. We met on the school run, so it definitely <laughs> says a lot about who who Jamie is. And
1: that's in seriousness. That that's one of the big advantages of being an entrepreneur and having your own business is that that you are more flexible or the you have the ability to be more flexible with your with your time. But also no one's
2: gonna care about it like you. Yeah. You're, yes, you'll always go the extra mile. It's like there's nothing if you ask me to do it, and I know it's gonna, you know, it's gonna help our business. Mm. It's done. Mm. It won't be a case of, I'll get it done tomorrow. It's on my list of to do. With so many other people, if mm. there's no sort of immediate effect or benefit, then you know it just gets parked. But it's really nice to work with someone who's got the, mm. uh, the similar. It, well, actually, you you don't sleep either, Jamie. Um, no, not in the same <laughs> way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, but but I think that the I, I think when you have your own businesses, I think that the the traditional separation between work and home life all melds into one, so Mm -hmm. it all just becomes part of your life. And actually, I find that very satisfying. Um, I I don't maybe I should cut off the weekend that I never check any emails or I don't ever respond to anything because that's kind of what you're supposed to do. But actually, it all feels like one journey, and and it's it's if if part of what you do as work is enjoyable then it doesn't actually encroach into your life in that way
2: but you've got daughters I've got daughters and I think it's actually really important to not close the door Mm. on work and show them how to work but Mm. to do it in a positive way you know we do the tastings in Jamie's kitchen if we're doing a photo shoot I bring my plates I mean Jamie (laughs) bless him is like have you got any interesting tea towels I'm like, do I look like the kind of girl who has any tea towels? <laughs> but bless you for thinking I would. It's just a really nice sort of, you know, it's really homely. It's really honest. The girls get involved. They taste the food. They help design the flyers. Yep. You know, they, they, it's it's something that I think is really important for our families to see how we work and that it's not a negative thing because it's, it's impacting the family. And actually, you know, I'd love for my children to go into business that, that makes them happy ultimately. And that's the lesson 100%. right there. Like, I love what I do. Jamie absolutely adores what he does. And so it doesn't feel like work and everyone's got to work. hundred so, You know, it, you've got to find a job that
0: of. But, looking at success, I suppose, you say everybody's got to work, and you've clearly both built up brilliant brands both individually and and I suppose as a business as well. but is success monetary or is it having the time to go and pick your kid up at six thirty because she needs to be picked up or go and see her at the school play? What is success to to you mylene let 's start with you
2: um okay, so for a long time, I was a, a single working mum, and I think I'll always still see myself as that. I have got a fiance and we have a new baby, but ultimately. For me, um, I wanted to make sure that my home life um, and my work life, if there is such a thing, was balanced or was as balanced as it could be. And um, that for me, just striving to find that balance, that's my success. I want my girls to um, have me at home and to be present there. And the fact that I created a job where they could come to work with me, you know, I shoot a, a children's brand up until they were 8 years old they they worked on that with me they were my muses and now they help pick the the clothing out for my my adult ranges um, I was with many brands before I'm, I'm with my current brand and, uh, you know, to, to work with Marks and Spencer's for seven years, to work with Littlewoods for another seven years and to then work with next, you, you get a whole, um, well, that's all the girls have seen, that's you all know, they know. 14, yeah. so that's, that's all they've seen coming and going Absolutely. from the household. But again, it's that longevity, you know, it, I think everyone can get a lucky chance if, if they keep on pushing to a degree, but it's how do you hold on to that? And I, I want them to see that it takes a lot of hard work, you know, <laughs> it takes a lot of hustling. It really does. And that hustling it's not a negative thing. I think, you know, when men do it in business, it's seen as, you know, an admirable thing. And I, and I want those same, um, attributes when, uh, as a woman in business to be recognized, not only by my children, but actually, you know, it, we, I, I very much encourage other women, um, are uh, working women in the groups that I work with. I, I work. There's one group of um, designers I work with who are just all mothers because I know the job will be done by 5.30. It'll be very efficiently run because we've all got tea time.
0: <laughs> but Jamie's also got a school play to go to at 6.30, so he'll be done by that point. But Jamie,
2: <laughs> <it's>
0: getting, <laughs> in terms of what success looks like to you then, Jamie, is it, is it being able to clock off when you want to clock off or, or is it having some financial freedom? We'll reference the Financial Times article shortly.
1: Well, you've referenced the the Financial Times article, and and that's interesting. I, I think f- for me, success is, is framed by creating something that has life and energy and is and is deemed as being successful, and and that's what I get a kick out of. I, I think I'm lucky uh, that that I've achieved a level of of um, I wouldn't call it financial independence because because you know, you've got teenagers <laughs> because I've got teenagers and I've got a mortgage and I've got you know it's it, you you're never completely independent um but but uh, and we still worry about you know stuff um uh, financially but um but yes we'd go on holidays and so, so we've got that level uh of, of security but I've never really been driven by big material stuff so um we we don't spend in that way we don't um we, we're just not particularly interested in in um in in material possessions i think it's much more important that we've got a very strong family unit we spend time together as a family and we manage to create stuff that people like and we feel really proud of i think i think that's that's the big thing i I love to be associated with things that i'm really proud of it just gives me a sense of fulfillment
0: things are changing people are looking more so at Uh, less of a sort of white male boardroom, more diversity and more inclusion, which is brilliant. And the world of kind of entrepreneurialism for females is a tough one. What would you kind of advise individual women going into business to do?
2: Learn from the guys. Do not take no for an answer. I see guys all the time blag it. And I see women, how should I put this? Guys will be like, yeah, I can do that. And girls will be like, they'll think about it and They'll be more honest about it, I suppose. I haven't tried that yet and I will give it a go and they'll be more conscientious about their answer. And I and, and I, I just think that we also need the guys. We very, very much so need the guys to turn around and cheer for us. Um, and I think that definitely comes when you've got, you know, fathers of daughters as well. And you've got a phenomenal, as I said, you've got a wife behind you as well. It's just, it's about just bringing all of that to the forefront. I talked about that racial ambiguity. There were no women that looked like me other than Vanessa May when I was growing up. And she still was also not of, she was, she was, I think she's, um, is she from Thailand? And so, you know, I'm, I'm a mixed race, Austrian, Filipino, Chinese, Spanish. I mean, there's nobody that I really could. Sort of just go. Oh, you're, you're you're from my look at the woods, and I was born in Norfolk as well. So there really was nobody that was as mixed as I was. <laughs> <laughs> but there's so many mixed race girls now, and there's and it's you know all those women that came before. I remember when I was pregnant and working on TV, I literally got hate mail. It's like people wanted me to be sent to the country in my yeah. it, to the countryside in my confinement. Yes until I'd had my baby, then it came down to breastfeeding, then it came down to working mothers, and it just doesn't stop. But the only way that we can actually keep you know, the face of business and a female out there is just by doing it, but also getting those opportunities from other women. I make sure I give those opportunities to other women, but we, we need the men on board. It, when we say things are going to be equal, that's exactly how they have to be. They have to be equal. And I've often walked into a board with you know, 10 guys and maybe two women, and those two women and me and my manager, Sev. So it's nice to see that changing, but it's also wonderful to see it. um, it. Isn't wonderful to see that that message is feeding down to our daughters because they don't know any different. They just see us doing it. And if you can't see it, you can't be it. So that's what they need to see.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Having two teenage daughters, I I feel, I feel quite a feminist um, on on their behalf in that, you know, I try and build up their confidence to be able to, to go head on into battle in any situation and, and, and feel, That they have just as much um, reason to achieve and ability to achieve as anybody else in that room. And and it always irritates me if I do sense that there's some kind of male female angle at play because that's just not acceptable now, especially for my daughters.
0: And it's brilliant to see that you guys are both in business um, together. And having met on the school run, I'm fascinated by how you actually struck that conversation up and went, right, I think now's the time to go into business when you're picking your children up from school. Just
2: how did that happen? I was actually complaining. I was complaining about having to go home in lockdown and try and figure out what else to cook because I feel like I said to him, I feel like I'm living in my kitchen. I am living in the kitchen <laughs> and I'm running out of ideas. I ran out of ideas months ago and I'm working this rotation of the same four meals.
1: We found lockdown exhausting. I mean, everybody found lockdown horrific and we were finding as a, as a family that the challenge of, of constantly cooking um And preparing and chopping and tidying up relentless and the only other solutions out there because obviously restaurants were closed but the only other solutions were kind of recipe boxes or takeaways Um, and neither of those worked for us the recipe boxes we found very simple and basic and not particularly appealing and and the takeaways just felt junky and and unhealthy and easy and so we were we were we were trying to find a way to eat brilliantly at home with less than ten minutes of effort, so that we could just do other things that we wanted to do in our lives, like watch Netflix or just have a chat. Um, <laughs> and and just found that there wasn't that solution. And and I think both of us had the same experience. And 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 I think that's why we really ultimately decided to to, to set this business up. Um, interestingly, as the world has returned to normal, that solution, even though restaurants are still uh, are back in back in action. That, that solution still feels really important because I just want, as a family, one day a week where the effort is taken out of the evening and, and I can just eat really well and, and move on to other stuff. Um, so, so even post-lockdown, it feels like it's part of the meal cycle that's, that, that, that we already want.
2: And also, it's been really nice to be able to tailor-make it. I think, you know, you talk about those recipe boxes that arrive. It's my 10-year-old daughter. You know, that they, they, they are so aware of their surroundings. And she would have, you know, she'd be making things out of the packaging because there was just so much packaging. And she would always be talking about the packaging, as she should be. That's what they're, they're learning about at the moment. And when we came to My Supper Hero, everything's compostable. We, you know, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, Jamie's been sourcing in places just... Uh, far far, and uh few and far between but we've got plant-based packaging so also that guilt is eradicated it's just a very different setup you've got 10 minutes rather than having to get the ingredients and still analyze the recipe and feel like you need to have a, a degree in, in, in mm. some science degree and just having to break it all down again and figuring out what you should have um preheated and then you're chopping again it's just 10 minutes it's done for you
0: so Miley you famously said on the website more chatting less chopping are you a good cook or are you a bad cook because I really can't cook to save my life so the meal box market does appeal to me quite heavily
2: I'm a functional functional cook so I I have a lot of admiration and for people that can cook I think they're like alchemists yeah, you know, I've got a sister who'll go, this needs more garlic. I mean, I don't know what this needs. I'll just need, I just know it needs something. And I just think that, you know, what Jamie does and, and, and what restaurant owners and chefs and all of the catering industry, it's just, it's not something I've necessarily known how to do, but I certainly um, can appreciate it. Um, what is it they say that not everybody can not ev- not everyone can march in the parade. you still need people clapping on the sides and i'm I'm applauding I, I'm good in, in, in in the eating so I still want good food, but I also have children that I have to make the food for, so this works for me because it's ten minutes. I can do ten minutes because it's emptying out. The bags.
0: So, are you the target market? You're the target market, then, Mikey, Mylene. You've gone from clothing to cooking. Obviously, Jamie's helped you with the cooking side of things. But the world of sort of meal prep and, and meal box marketing, I suppose, it's not exactly lucrative. Big businesses make a lot of loss for a long period of time. Why did you decide to go into that world?
2: Firstly, everyone needs to eat, and secondly, when those boxes arrive, the judgment that your neighbours usually have for you like mm, takeaway at number 22 or <laughs> you just see these bright boxes that you're just thinking you know again it's wasteful it's packaging no one's cooking in there i'm not saying it's yes. judgment on the neighborhood but i'm just saying that nobody willingly walks in with these boxes saying this is what we're eating tonight so even that side of things i've really enjoyed doing with jamie we've marketed the boxes and the bags just to look like something you would want to walk down the road with <laughs> you know it could almost be mistaken they well, it brilliant it's It's about the whole process, it's about the whole experience. Uh, And I've really enjoyed that side of things because ultimately, yeah, you're marketing to people like yourself and me who don't necessarily enjoy all that time in the kitchen but definitely enjoy the time around the table
0: and it looks brilliant online I mean there's no way in hell frankly even if I used one of your boxes I'd be able to do it because I I don't even know how to turn the cooker on to be honest Mylene that's where I fall down but in terms of well, Jamie where gonna, you kind I'm,
2: of <laughs> no, I'm going to take your address and we're going to send it to you and we'll put this to the test I will I'm going to put this and to the test, and I'll have my
0: tada moment
2: <laughs> Just turn the oven on. The rest is done for you.
0: Oh God, he's hoping? Jamie, you must have obviously been quite heavily involved in trying to get this off the ground, knowing obviously a how to turn the oven on and b how to cook. That's pretty integral when starting when starting this business specifically. Nevertheless, Miley obviously the driving force in terms of making sure people hear about it. Just how much effort have you had to put in to this new business, having seen the success that you have seen to date?
1: It's been a lot of hard work, but it's been a lot of fun. And I think what's been enjoyable is that first thing we do is start with the product so that there are recipes there there are dishes there that i really want to eat so we've got we've got a fantastic portuguese marinated uh spatchcock chicken which comes with a roasted black garlic aioli and we we have pierre kaufman's potatoes with a piri piri butter and they're just really really lovely dishes to eat um we've got a, a roast teriyaki uh broccoli with um miso-marinated oh, salmon it, and stop it. it. anyway food is delicious so stop i'm getting carried away because i'm hungry but um, <laughs> naughty. I, I think what was what was really <laughs> enjoyable is that that it wasn't just the initial product but because it was a new business we were able to start it as a really positive ethical company so we we followed uh, this system called B Corp, which I don't know if you're familiar with, but it's—I it's seen that it's B Corp additive. pending
0: online. I have seen that. So yes, yeah,
1: yeah. so you can't—you can't actually get your certification until you've been trading for a year. But we've gone through the initial testing uh, to make sure that we're B Corp pending. But what that means is that we've had to concentrate on making sure that the deliveries as much as possible are emissions-free. That the the, uh, the packaging is plant-based as much as it can be. That we've got um, a diverse team that works for us that we know our supply chain. Um, and actually, it's a lot easier to set those things up from scratch than it is to try and retrofit it on a mature business. So it was really exciting for us to to set this business up in a really great way, not just have a great product, but then not care about anything else. We've got a, a group of restaurants uh, separate to, <laughs> to My Supper Hero, which have been through a difficult couple of years through COVID. And we've managed to fight through it and 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 have actually... We've shown some real entrepreneurial skill and some agility, and we fought our battles. And uh, last year, despite the fact that we were closed for three months of the year, managed to actually get over this psychological hurdle of actually making over a million pounds um, a profit during that period, which was uh, a, f- a fantastic achievement and, and something that that we wanted to kind of share with our teams. Um, saying that, quite a lot of that money went out uh, in, in different ways, whether it's to banks or to, uh, to to refurb our existing estate. But it's, it's psychologically, it was a great achievement for us.
0: Just talk to me then about how you pivoted and overcame that. To make a million net profit in a year is hard even in the best of times. You said there were some bank repayments and there was some refurb and that's fine. But how did you overcome that 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 barrier? Three months not trading, you still made a million net.
1: Well, the, the group of restaurants I've got, so I've got Hash and Mayfair, then I have a group of burger restaurants called Hashay, the burger brasseries, um, and we've got some Brazilian restaurants called Cabana, and uh, we'd been working on a strategy for two or three years to really supercharge those restaurants, and then COVID just took the rug under that. Um, but as soon as we started to emerge from COVID in 2021, um, all of the work, the groundwork that we'd set up, started to kind of grow, um, grow fruit. So the, the burger business had an unbelievable uh, delivery add-on business, and during. The various lockdowns, we were doing five times the amount of delivery business that that we were doing previously, um, and uh, and then I think there was so much anticipation of restaurants reopening, and we were so geared up to take advantage of that that as soon as we were allowed to open, we did open. Um, we saw surges that we were able to to cope with, and and people had a fantastic experience and kept coming back, and that fueled uh, just just a, f- a phenomenal year for us. So um, it was a lot of hard work and a lot of groundwork preparation before we got there and you've
0: obviously set teams up before when you start businesses you've obviously been able to know what works and what doesn't work what were the kind of basics that you went into my supper hero with what was the team that you put in place from day one
1: um well obviously we needed a team of chefs to execute the uh the the, the boxes and we've got fantastic we've got a head chef called uh, charlie bronson who came from the DD restaurant group brilliant cook um and uh, he's got a little team that works with him. And then the, there's a side which I had no exposure or experience to, which was the e-commerce side. So we had to have somebody that actually was able really? to look after the development of the site, to be able to manage the integrations with all the different software platforms that we need. And that that was the that was something that was a massive steep learning curve for me because I've been in business 20 years and have never done a digital business before. And so I'm, I'm playing a very, very fast catch up with people that have been in this industry for 10, 15 years. And I'm finding that just... As a personal development, I'm finding that really exciting and interesting.
0: I was going to say, because the world has changed massively over the last 20 years, where people used to kind of go into a restaurant to enjoy their food and, you know, remember the moment themselves. They now share it online, and it's a very Instagram-orientated world. Have you had to build this business around the Instagrammable Aspect, Mylene.
2: It's funny you say that. So we'd be putting together mood boards and uh, of how we wanted our food to look. You know, the tones, the colours, even the, the way that it was presented. I love the econometric side of things when it comes to um, the the figures uh, 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 online. Um, I love the analytical side of things. I love the visuals of it, the pace, having to find the handwriting, having to find the the, the tone of voice for it. We wanted it to. Um, we, you know, again, we didn't want it to to, to look um, too stark. Um, I think that a lot of people um, often try to make things look fresh and clean, but in so doing, they zap out any personality. That's within the meal, and you know, eating's fun. It's passionate. It it's, it is like we said, less chopping, more chatting. You just want to get in there, and you want to talk to your friends. We haven't seen our friends for a hundred years. We want to get back to that. So it was it was really important that we put the personality back into it as well. And like you said, uh, we were saying before, it wasn't just purely here is your food, it has been delivered, it is a function. We wanted from the box through to the presentation, through to, as we said, the voice. I didn't want uh, uh, it to be a case of, um, here's a really long video explaining how to, to make this fish. You know, it, all the work <laughs> has already been done. And it was just nice to add just a little bit of, I don't know, a, a little something on the top, just a little bit of personality and experience. And you're absolutely right. The way that we we consume our media now. It's fast. It's really fast. No yeah. one's sitting down watching a half hour programme now on on, on how to, to put this together. You know, it's often 30 seconds, 15 seconds if you're hitting the the sweet spot on TikTok.
0: A hundred percent in fact TikTok's a brilliant market. Are you guys looking at marketing on TikTok? It sounds like it's a pretty good synergy there. Mm,
2: it's like you've read <laughs> our minds.
1: Yes, yeah,
0: can't comment. Uh, I mean there's
1: there's obviously reels and TikTok are uh, all unbelievably Great platforms, and
0: particularly for food. I Look,
2: a hundred thousand people watched me make a fish in fifteen seconds for my fiance last night. What can I say? There's a market for it.
0: <laughs> to be fair though, fifteen seconds is pretty quick to make a fish. I didn't even know you could do it in that time. There you honest. go.
2: We- Once you <laughs> turn that oven on, you're off.
0: Well, there we go. That takes fifteen seconds in and of itself. And just looking, I suppose, at the, the clientele that you have within the hush, uh, the hush group, I suppose, you know, fairly high end, very, very kind of um, good quality food. Again, the way that you've marked. At, at my supper hero you've gone for memberships rather than subscriptions is that again to look at that kind of higher tier uh, clientele
1: no i don't I, I think that we class my supper hero as being premium affordable um the the meals all range from 12 pounds 50 to maybe 15 pounds per person which which really puts it um quite squarely as an alternative to having a takeaway from a from a premium restaurant or from or or, or I mean, to be honest, I think it's quite difficult to go out to eat at the moment. By the time you've traveled somewhere and you've had a bottle of wine, it's not it's not easy to go out to eat uh, at that kind of price. So so um, it, it it's something that is within the uh, price point of a, a lot of households, not every household, but a lot of households. Um, so um, I, I don't think there was a conscious desire to kind of hit a high-end premium tier. We've seen some menu boxes or meal kits that that are up at the sort of 120 to £150 pounds per head, and that's of no interest to us personally. What are you
2: getting for that?
1: Um, I mean, I, 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 a lot of, of hassle and a lot of... <laughs> a lot of twiddly things i did one i did one i did <laughs> one, I did one over all. lockdown it took me hours oh, i had, God, I, had no. I had so many pans out it no, was exhausting you've lost it was both. exhausting
0: <laughs> i think actually what you do get with that and i know because i've ordered them is you get a small man that turns up and turns your oven on for you it's genius it really is, <laughs> it, really is. it really is it's excellent this is where you're gonna get Mylene turning the oven on, I'll come on. Here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'd pay 120 pounds for that don't you worry about that thank you thanks, so much thanks. Mylene. <laughs> in terms then of kind of where the company's going you've been been game for 10 weeks. Are we going to be finding, you know, Christmas dinners being delivered through our door via My Supper Hero this Christmas coming? Well, we
1: did, yes, we did Christmas. Well, dinner, okay. So, yeah, we've done, we've got a fantastic Valentine's Day lamb, which, uh, which you're probably would have missed the cutoff date to order that. But, um, certainly we're we're looking at doing Sunday roast. I think we're looking for, to do, we're looking to help people with with solutions to their issues. And if, if people say that they really want us to do, um,
2: yeah it's not completely altruistic yeah. I'm always like can we do that um, cauliflower roast <laughs> yeah. it's great
1: Exactly. we're trying to fix a need and we're, we're listening to people we've got a little Facebook group where people are swapping ideas as to what they want to, to, to see out of us and we're responding to that ultimately we've just got to match up people's wants with, with, their, with our, our product.
0: but if I want to order one of these potential lamb roasts for Valentine's Day or next year I want to order a Christmas turkey for Christmas Day where do I go?
2: go to My
1: a hero that's it we'll do the rest <laughs> which is www.mysupperhero.com thank you so much guys thanks a lot
0: thanks for listening join me next week wednesday at 8 a.m on all podcast platforms where we'll be speaking to another leading entrepreneur show your support by subscribing as without you this podcast wouldn't happen produced by pinpoint media and sponsored by capsule cover this was a success is in the mind podcast take care